Today we look at the two federal indictments to Cardi B's BFF Starbrim, and we look at Cardi B's actual charges in New York State Court. Together they're facing about 80 years in prison. Welcome to Hood Law. My name is Nate, former prosecutor, law enforcement officer, and law school lecturer, and welcome to Hood Law. Now, this is a show about the law and how it affects the hood. Today, we are going to look at the federal indictments of Star Brim, the alleged godmother of the Five Nine Brims. Now, who is Star Brim? Quick recap. Cardi B's best friend is facing charges tonight in a sweeping gang roundup. Starbrim, whose real name is Yannette Respass, was indicted on racketeering and assault charges. They say she was the highest-ranking woman in the 5'9 Brims gang. That's a subset of the Blood Street Gang. She's also accused of putting out a hit on a bartender she thought was having an affair with Cardi B's husband, Offset. In recent years, Brim has become a bit of a social media celebrity with nearly a million followers on Instagram. She also appears on Cardi's account regularly. So today, let's look at the facts and allegations that the government has put forward. And we're also going to look at Cardi B's 12 charges. We could get her about a decade in prison. Star Brim has been indicted in both the Southern District of New York, that covers the Bronx and Manhattan, and the Eastern District of New York, which covers Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Both of Star Brim's indictments are RICO indictments. RICO stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Now, for those of you who don't understand how RICO works, here's a quick lesson. RICO doesn't go after individuals, but it goes after criminal organizations. See, just like any other company, you have groups of people carrying out various tasks. And you have people doing things like payroll and HR. And all of them are working in furtherance of the organization. Now, some people are motivated by their paycheck and other people are motivated to move up in the company. For example, I worked in the DA's office. Now, I was a prosecutor, but we also had an HR department. Now, I didn't know what they did in the HR and they didn't know what I did at my job. But we were all working together to further the goals of the DA's office. Now, in a corrupt organization, it's the exact same thing. You have some people working in prostitution, some people working in selling drugs, some people working in recruitment. But all of those people are working to further the organization. Now, this could be either your conventional street gang, like the Blood Street Gang, or this could be like the Mafia. Now, what RICO does is it allows the government to hold everyone involved in a criminal organization accountable for the crimes committed in furthering that organization, from the people selling drugs to the people doing the recruiting. Now, even if the defendant is not aware of the other crimes being committed on behalf of the organization, they can still be held accountable. Now, because the government has to prove a defendant is part of a criminal organization for Regal to apply, it's extremely foolish to admit that you're involved in a criminal organization. What does Starbrim mean? It means my name is Star and I'm Blood. So that's oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, that's right. The star <laughs> is the sign for. Brim is the set I'm in. But Cardi did indeed tweet that she's actually Brim Blood, which amazingly isn't the name of one of Harry Potter's professors. Brim, not Nine Trey. I've never been Nine Trey or associated with them. 
So now let's talk about the timeline of events with Starbrim and Cardi B. So again, these are allegations. Federal prosecutors and state prosecutors allege that on October 15, 2018, members of the Five Nine Brims carried out a violent assault against bartenders at the Angel Strip Club in Flushing, Queens. Now, prosecutors allege that they carried this out because these two women didn't show the proper respect to another member of the gang. Now, most news reports will tell you that one of these women, one of these bartenders, was alleged to have slept with Cardi B's husband, Offset. Now, Star Brim, who was serving a federal prison sentence at the time, commissioned the younger members of the Blood Street Gang, and she called them Drops. And she said to, quote, pop that bottle on the bartender, stating that I want hands put on them. I don't even want no talking. Now, that night, defendants Jeffrey Bush, Louis Love, Rodolfo Zambrano, and three of Respass's drops met at Angel, where they lured one of the bartenders across the bar, and while holding her by the hair, they began to beat her and throw bottles at her. Now, Bush recorded the assault on cell phone video, and the video was sent to other gang members on behalf of Respass, who allegedly ordered the attack. Respass is Starbrim. And again, this was all allegedly because one of these bartenders was sleeping with Cardi B's husband. So Starbrim was charged with conspiracy to commit assault in the aid of racketeering. And this was in the Eastern District of New York. And for that charge, she is facing 20 years in prison. So two weeks after that, Cardi B went to the same strip club. And then she allegedly ordered the bartenders to be beaten again. King Von is one of the newer rappers in the Chicago hip-hop scene. With his hottest track, Crazy Story, doing over 30 million views on the World Star Hip Hop YouTube channel at the time of this recording, King Von is making a rather impressive name for himself in Chicago hip hop. But what makes King Von's career even more iconic is the fact that King Von hasn't even been rapping for a year yet. He claims that the only reason he got into rapping was because he's done everything else and not because he had some sort of knack for rapping. What King Von mainly means by that is that he's done almost everything when it comes to the streets. So all he has left to do is tell his stories and experiences through his music. Even though King Von doesn't have an extremely lengthy rap sheet like some of his peers, King Von definitely has a unique criminal history due to the outcome of some of his cases. Well, without further ado, here is an exclusive inside look at the criminal history of King Vaughn. King Vaughn's first run-ins with the law were not very well documented due to the fact that he was a minor at the time of his arrests. But luckily, he gave a little bit more detail of those arrests in an interview with DJ Small's Eyes. In the interview, King Von mentioned that his first arrest was for an armed robbery where apparently he robbed someone at gunpoint and stole their car. When King Von was caught, the police sent him to a juvenile detention center where the charges against him were ultimately dropped due to King Von being so young at the time. But the only way to make this deal work out was that a judge required King Von to attend a boot camp for a certain amount of time. 
For the other three arrests, King Von gave almost little to no detail, but apparently one of them was for possession of a firearm. King Von didn't say how this case ended, but we can probably assume that he was sent to a juvenile detention center and got convicted, but under a certain type of condition where it gets taken off of his record after he turns 18. King Von also mentions that he was locked up at one time for 15 months, and the time before that for 14 months. Von gave no details as of why, but it apparently happened. King Von's next arrest happened when he was only 19 years old, in 2014. According to authorities, King Von was at a party when a guy named Malcolm Stuckey was steady eyeballing him. King Von must have taken offense to this because he then grabbed his friend Michael Wade and left the party in a gray vehicle. Around 45 minutes later, King Von and Wade returned to the party but parked in an alley near the home. The two then got out of the car with loaded guns and headed to the front of the residence. Malcolm Stuckey and two other people were sitting on the front porch when King Von and Wade opened fire on them. Stuckey and the other man fled down LaSalle Street, but both ended up getting shot. The other man on the porch was shot as well as he was attempting to run inside the home. In the end, three people were critically wounded, but Malcolm Stuckey unfortunately got shot in the head and died later that day. After the shooting, King Von and Wade ran back to their car and fled. Both of them ended up getting arrested days later. During the investigations, over 20 shell casings were recovered, and Wade even admitted to police that he had fired a gun 15 or 16 times at one of the victims. King Von, on the other hand, refused to talk to the authorities. The two were held without bond and were facing life in prison for charges of first-degree murder and two attempted murders. After sitting in jail for three and a half years, the trial finally began. The trial lasted a total of five days and the outcome is, honestly, surprising. Wade got sentenced to 28 years in prison, while King Von was acquitted of all charges. After three and a half years in Cook County Jail, King Vaughn was free. Since his release, King Vaughn was staying out of trouble and began rapping. Vaughn also moved to Atlanta to be around his good friend Lil Durk, who is also an extremely successful rapper. With a promising future ahead of him and all while being surrounded by many other successful people, you would think that King Von would never risk all that to commit some stupid crime. But, sadly, that was not the case. Because on May 17, 2019, King Von was arrested once again in Fulton County, Georgia. Sources say that King Von was involved in a shooting that occurred on February 5, 2019 at the parking lot of the Varsity in downtown Atlanta. Officers apparently responded to a call at around 5.45 a.m. after gunshots were reported in the area. When they arrived, they found a 23-year-old man shot to the lower extremities. The man was found outside of his vehicle in the parking lot and was taken to Atlanta Medical Center in serious condition. Thankfully, he survived. After three months of investigation, police determined that King Vaughn was the alleged shooter and eventually ended up arresting King Vaughn 
moments after that conclusion was made. King Vaughn is still locked up to this day and is being held without bond. Sources close to the situation say that the man King Vaughn shot was attempting to rob him and that it was done in self-defense. Internet detectives are speculating that King Vaughn will get three years, while others say he'll get off completely. There's a general perception that Nevada is like the Wild West and that everybody carries guns. The truth is that Nevada is a state that is a strong Second Amendment state, and it is lawful to carry a concealed weapon in the state of Nevada if you have a concealed weapons permit, which is fairly easy to obtain for someone who does not have a criminal history. However, it is unlawful to carry a concealed weapon if you don't have a concealed weapons permit. If you carry a concealed dirk or dagger or knife, uh, it's a misdemeanor that carries up to six months in jail for a first offense. For a second offense, it would be treated as a gross misdemeanor up to a year in jail. Carrying a concealed firearm without a permit is a Category C felony, which carries a penalty of up to five years in state prison. What is the definition of concealed weapon? A concealed weapon is when you possess a weapon that is not readily observable. So if you carry it um, hidden in a pocket, if there's a jacket that covers it and it can't be seen, that would constitute carrying a concealed weapon. Defenses to carrying a concealed weapon. Often we see factual scenarios where a client uh, may tell us that the weapon they had was, was prominently displayed on their hip, may have been in a holster, and they say it was completely exposed and readily observable. Uh, an accuser might say that their shirt was covering the weapon or a jacket was covering the weapon, uh, and ultimately it's the state's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the weapon was not readily observable in order to obtain a conviction for this charge. At the Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had a lot of success defending people on these charges. If our client has a legitimate reason for carrying the weapon, if there's a legitimate issue of fact as to whether or not the weapon was readily observable, if our client has a lack of criminal history, um, there's a, a very strong chance that we're going to be able to negotiate a really good resolution with a reduced charge in the event that we can't get the case dismissed altogether. And then those people, all, almost all those people have personality defects. So you just have to deal with people. You know, he starts spinning some, uh, Lugo would start spinning some, some BS lie that everybody at the table sitting there thinking, Come on, man, stop. That never happened. That's bullshit. That, come on, stop it. And we're all glancing at each other going, okay, okay. You don't really call the guy out on it because what does it matter? You don't really, you don't want to start building up enemies. So Lugo and I were, we hung out. Not all the time, but, but quite a while. So now the guy that called me left me a voicemail.
Colby, you can leave all this in here. Like if, like all this stuff, even me talking to you, I don't care if you leave it in or not. It, it's irrelevant. So Colby is my video editor and nobody expects professionalism from me. So to sit here and think, oh, I got to clip that and make sure that he looks good here or that it, 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 it's bad because he clipped. Uh, nobody cares. I don't care. Run with it. Uh, so, back to the story. Regardless of Lugo's mental issues or, or, or his, the fact that he lied constantly, he did know what he was talking about a lot of times. And, and I liked him. He was a nice guy. I mean, it's, I understand it's like saying, you know, that uh, you used to you know, eat lunch with uh, Joseph Stalin. And yeah, sure, he wiped out, you know, eight to 10 million, you know, Russian civilians and, and millions and millions of, uh, of, you know, people died and were put in gulags and whatever. You know, you say, yeah, but you know what? He was a pretty nice guy, you know, in person. So what I'm saying is, yeah, he had some issues, but he was always cool to me. Uh, I would say that it was, we were pretty, we were cool right up till he left. You know, and when he left, I remember he was like, bro, I'm going to reach out to you. Uh, I'm going to put money on your books. I'm going to hang out with you. And it, his wife actually put money on my books one time, once or twice. Like he actually sent me, like sent me money. I mean, Lugo had some money, like whatever he did, his wife ended up, I think, keeping a lot of that money and he went to prison. So Lugo got caught, I want to say it was 2014 or 15, got a couple of years for running the tax scam uh, through his own, one of his own businesses. Then he, he, what else happened? Uh, then he got out, I want to say he got out in 2000 and early 2018. Uh, he got out in early 2018 because he got out like about a year or so before I did. So let's, let's say that like early, early 2018. Well, I never really heard from him again. I don't know if I got a letter or whatever. His wife had actually put money on my books, but that was while he was there in prison, like together. Like guys will put money on their books because they've got too much money. You can only, you have a spending limit for commissary. So if you can only spend three or $400 a month on commissary, you'll have somebody put money on another inmate's books and he can buy you commissary. And Lugo was a big guy. So uh, his wife put money on my books. And I got to keep some of the money. And then I, I bought him some stuff and handed him some stuff. And that happened a few times. And uh, he said he was going to keep in touch with me. I don't know if he ever sent me a letter. I don't think I ever really heard from him again. Regardless, I ended up getting out of prison and when I got out of the halfway house, so like a year and a half later, I get out of the halfway house. This, this is July 2000 and 2019. So he got up early 2000, 
2018, I got out in 2019. When I got out of the halfway house, I didn't hear from him or anything. Like, I didn't expect, I really honestly never expected to hear from this guy again, ever. And I, you know, went about my, my, my life and everything's fine. Well, I would say late 2020. In late 2020, so a, over a year, year and a, a year and change later. In late, this is only what six months ago. I would say it was. I want it was. It was like um, September, probably September. I I get a I get a, a message in Messenger from from. A guy named, uh, what, what is his, uh, I think it was like Ricky Williams or Rick Williams. So I get a Rick Williams and he's like, hey bro, what's up? I've been looking for you. Uh, here's my phone number. Give me a call. You know, hey crazy. I remember he called me. He's like, hey crazy man, give me a call. And I was like, Will Rick Williams, Ricky Williams. And I, 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 I didn't, I don't even know who that is. But I looked at the picture and then I went to his Facebook and I was like, whoa, it was Lugo. And so I ended up talking to him. He, he, I think he ended up calling me. Assault and battery. What's the difference between assault and battery? The difference between assault and battery is that a battery ends up with an actual strike, an actual touching, while an assault does not, right? The assault can take place without even striking another person, right? So let's go to battery. Is there more than one type of battery offense in Nevada? Yes, there are many. There are many common forms of battery, right? For example, First, let's start out with simple battery. This is misdemeanor battery. It's a battery constituting domestic violence. It's also a misdemeanor battery. Then you go into some felonies. Battery with a deadly weapon. Battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, those are the types of batteries, right? According to Nevada state law, battery is defined as any willful and unlawful use of force or violence upon the person of another. Right? Battery can occur against another person, adult, a minor, or even a protected person or a person over the age of 60. Those are kind of sometimes how they'll classify it. So what are the types of people when I talk about protected class? Those basically involve certain professionals are given this special class. These include the following, right? Police officers, firefighters, correction officers, taxi cab drivers, school employees, judges, health care providers, right? Those are part of a protected class. The penalties increase if you commit a battery against one of those persons. What about a simple battery? Well, a simple battery is defined as any non-consensual harmful contact regardless of the injury involved. So this could involve a push, a spit, even a punch, 
What is a battery with a deadly weapon? Well, it's pretty simple, right? A battery with a deadly weapon is defined as a non-consensual contact with a person with the use of a deadly weapon or, and this could be like a baseball bat. It could be a knife. It could be a gun. It could be anything used to cause substantial bodily harm. What about battery with substantial bodily harm? Battery with substantial bodily harm is defined as a non-consensual harmful contact that results in the loss of a limb or any other type of permanent disfigurement and results in serious felony upgrade for the offense. So, I mean, even if you punch somebody, you break their nose, oftentimes a prosecutor will charge it as a battery with substantial bodily harm. Now, what are the penalties for battery? It all depends on what a person is convicted of, right? So if it's a misdemeanor battery, the potential sentence is up to six months in jail. Felony battery, up to 10 years in prison, depending on some of the ones that I previously spoke about, right? So what are the defenses to an assault, right? So each case is unique, but there are different defenses. They vary, right? Some of the common defenses could include as follows, right? There was no reasonable indication that the actions that the defendant was going to take would be considered offensive, right? So, for example, in the assault context, or you could even say self-defense in assault. I had a situation recently where the alleged victim in the case yelled a racial slur at my client, right? You effing spick, he said. Now, my client went up to that person and said, you know what, if you weren't a woman, I'd kick your ass, right? So the prosecutor charged that person with assault. Is that assault? No. Why? Because the person, the defendant, qualified what he was going to do, right? He said, if you were not a woman, I would kick your ass. She was a woman, therefore he wasn't going to kick her ass. The reasonable apprehension of an immediate battery was not reasonable because he never was going to do it. He qualified the language, right? Some of the same stuff with defenses to a battery, some of the common defenses are going to be self-defense and or a lack of intent, right? So on the self-defense side, could be, listen, this person came at me initially and I responded in self-defense. I responded in like kind. Or with regard to a lack of intent, let's say there's a situation where you inadvertently touch somebody, you inadvertently shove them. You're walking, you trip, and you shove them. Is there an unconsensual touching? Absolutely. But was there an intent to hit the person? Absolutely not. No battery. If you add all those facts up, the law does not regard that as a problem. So you've said, I drove my car, I went down the street, and I looked at you with a harsh look. Therefore, I'm suing for $80,000. If you're faced with something like that, of course, it would be more sophisticated than that. But as an attorney, you look through it and you read through and say, 
what they are saying that we did, we didn't do this. But even if we did do that, that's not against the law. So the law doesn't care. So you don't need to go through a trial. You attack the complaint and you say, you have failed to state a claim that entitles you to relief. And you can get the case dismissed immediately. Another basis for challenging the complaint is that it lacks sufficient detail. And this comes from jurisprudence that the Supreme Court has given us since 2007 that you'll study in your civil procedure classes. But basically it says there's got to be enough facts there that show that you have plausible entitlement to relief. So defendants can respond and say, well, there's not enough information here. You say you were fired from your job and it was because of your age, therefore you want compensation. But I don't see any facts in here that are backing that up. So unless you're going to put that information in there, I think this complaint needs to be dismissed uh, for failing to state a claim. That's a little more complicated, and you'll, again, you'll talk about that in your first year course. So those are some of the pre-answer motions that you can use as a basis for challenging a complaint. The next step then, if we've gone past these pre-answer motions, is the answer. And the answer is when you respond as the defendant. And there are different types of responses that you can have. The main thing are admissions and denials. So a complaint is going to be a series of allegations. You did A, you did B, you did C, therefore I re, um, uh, request this, these damages. So your first paragraph might say, I admit I did A. Paragraph two, I deny I did B. Paragraph three, I admit I did C. So you admit and deny things. Now, if you admit everything, then the plaintiff is going to be able to respond with the motion under 12C, which is a motion for judgment on the pleadings. I've said they did this. They admitted it. I win. There's no point to having a trial. Uh, the facts have been conceded, and the law is on my side. So that would be a maneuver that the plaintiff could employ. All right, so in answer, you have admissions and denials. But also in an answer, you're going to have something called affirmative defenses, which you'll learn about later. But an example of an affirmative defense would be in this situation, the plaintiff is suing this driver, excuse me, this defendant, uh, for a car accident. If the defendant thinks that the plaintiff was negligent somehow in this interaction or in causing this accident, that would be something called contributory negligence. Well, in some states, seven states, I believe, they recognize contributory negligence as a complete bar to relief. So if the defendant is able to prove that the, the, the plaintiff was contributory negligent, then that can defeat the plaintiff's claim. That's called an affirmative defense. That has to be raised in the answer or it's waived. So affirmative defenses are something your attorney or you as the attorneys would want to consider in your answer. The last thing that you can have in your answer, well, one of the last things is claims. So I've already drawn up here another claim. This claim would be asserted in the context of an answer, and it's called a counterclaim. And we're going to talk more about counterclaims and other types of claims when I get to the next topic, which is called joinder. But in your answer, 
that's where you would assert additional claims that you want to have in the case. So if the defendant is your client and is being sued, and your client says, well, wait a minute, I was injured in this accident too, and I think it was the plaintiff's fault. Shouldn't the defendant then be suing the plaintiff? Why is the defendant the defendant? Well, the plaintiff was the first mover. Just because the plaintiff was the first mover doesn't mean the defendant doesn't get to take affirmative action against the plaintiff. Now, they are stuck with doing that here, potentially, because there are rules that compel them to assert this in this action, as opposed to going somewhere else and doing it. That gets complicated. Uh, but they will typically respond with a counterclaim, saying, well, you think I'm at fault, I think you're at fault, and I have injuries. So this is not just an affirmative defense. An affirmative defense is when you are defeating the plaintiff's claim based on something that the plaintiff did wrong. A counterclaim is, I have injuries that you are responsible for, therefore you owe me money. So you would assert that counterclaim here. And as I said earlier, supplemental jurisdiction is something you would need to get that in there if it's only $50,000. Here in Nevada, the age of consent to have sex is 16 years old. If you have sex with someone under the age of 16, generally in the 14 to 15 year range, that is considered to be a crime of statutory sexual seduction. A statutory sexual seduction charge is commonly referred to in other states as statutory rape. If the party is 16 or over, there's no crime. Now, a lot of people uh, sort of react to the term statutory rape by saying, well, it wasn't a rape. I mean, the uh, yes, maybe I, I had sex with a minor, but it was perfectly consensual, uh, she or he, uh, uh, invited it, that, you know, there was no force, there was no coercion. And, and the, the response is that it really doesn't matter because the law says a minor does not have the ability to consent to sex. So, so even if it's, it's sort of consensual in a very common sense way of thinking about it, uh, it's still a crime, legally speaking. Regarding penalties for statutory sexual seduction here in Nevada, the penalty is contingent upon the age of the accused. If you are under the age of 21 and you have sex with someone under the age of 16, that is a gross misdemeanor punishable by either 12 months in jail or a $2,000 fine. However, if you are above the age of 21, and you have sex with someone under the age of 16, the penalties are much more severe. It is a category C felony punishable by one to five years of imprisonment in the Nevada Department of Corrections. Further, the penalties also encompass sex offender registration, which often can be for life. A lot of people assume that if someone had a false ID, or falsely told someone they were above the age of 16 that that's a defense. In Nevada, it's not. It's a strict liability crime. So if someone is under the age of 16 and you have sexual relations with them, you can be charged with the crime of statutory sexual seduction. 
Now, now we find that that this offense of statutory rape, unlawful sex with a minor, is really one where a lot of people do get wrongly accused. And, and one of the reasons is that, that the accused may not have had uh, actual sex w- with the person. So uh, they may have kissed, they may have, there may have been heavy petting, cuddling, uh, sort of uh, romantic interaction that claim, came close to sex, but no actual penetration. And if that's the case, then it's not the crime of, of statutory rape. Secondly, we, we see a lot of false accusations. Uh, minors make accusations against adults all the time for, for a host of reasons. Sometimes they, they feel neglected, they're jealous, they're bitter, they're angry. So a lot of times it's he said, she said situations where, where uh, we have a client who's been falsely accused. These cases are not always easy for the prosecution to prove because often the witnesses are reluctant to participate in the proceedings. Welcome to Nitty Gritty Real Estate. In this series, we're interviewing Matthew Cox. He's infamous for committing millions of dollars in mortgage fraud, for which he served 12 years in prison. He has an ugly past, no doubt, but we're looking beyond that to learn from his unique perspective in the industry so that we can become better real estate investors. Let's get into it. Well, a cashback scam is like, well, what's interesting about that, you, a lot of people call it, a, you know, it's like a, like a hidden down payment, right? Or a, a, um, okay, so basically it's, it's when you're, there's different versions, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of investors will do this. They'll, they got a house selling it for two, for let's, let's say, let's use 100,000 for simplicity. Mm-hmm. So I'm selling a house for 100,000, right? So I bought the house for 40,000, I put 20,000 in, I got 60 grand in the house. I have a guy that wants to buy the house. I have a buyer, but he's only got maybe $1,000, but he qualifies for the loan. He can get a 95% loan. So I've got 60,000 in the house. I'm about to get $95,000, but he has to come up with his 5% down payment. Mm-hmm. So what, what ends up happening is he doesn't have 5% down. So what you what these guys end up doing is they say, look, I'll give you your down payment. And maybe they put it in the bank for him or they can, or they'll, they'll get the borrower or they'll get the, uh, the guy gets the, um, he'll, he'll make it look like he sold a vehicle or he'll get it so that it looks like his parents gifted him the money or he'll, they'll come up with a way to pass seasoning on the funds. Maybe they say, hey, go get the money out of your 401k and, and use that money and then I'll give you the money back. So what happens is the borrower brings five grand to the closing, whether the, whether the seller gives it to him or not, it's irrelevant. He shows up with it so now you've got $100,000 that's at the closing. The seller gets his 90, gets the $100,000, but he gives the borrower $5,000, his $5,000 down payment back. 
He's doing that because he's saying, he's got a buyer. He's going to make the difference. But he, he didn't mind giving back 5000 out of the 40000 he's about to make. He makes 35000 but he wasn't going to make anything if he hadn't sold the house. And he has a guy that's going to buy it for 100000 So they call that a cash back scam. Really, it's also like a, you're, it's a hidden down payment. You're hiding the guy's down payment. But the, the, the one that's the bigger issue, not that that's not fraud, because clearly that's fraud. But the bigger issue is a lot of times when you say, look, I got a piece of property. I bought this property for 40. I put 20 in it, but it will appraise for 140. That was a big thing in Tampa. A lot of places you could buy a property for 50 or 60, and it'll, you can get it appraised for 200,000 because it's an up and coming area. Mm-hmm. And there are houses in that area where these, these uh, what do they call them, urban pioneers have come in and they're paying ridiculous money for these houses. So you've got houses that are selling for 40 or 50 that can appraise for 200. What happens, a lot of these guys will go in and buy up houses for 50 put five or 10 or 20,000 and whatever, clean them up a little bit, but not to the extent that they should be selling at 200,000. Then they turn around and they get buyers that will buy the property for 200,000. So you buy it from me for 200,000. I know you don't really want to buy the property for 200,000 or you maybe don't want to buy the property at all. But what I'll do is I'll give you $40,000 back. So you get a loan on the house for 180,000 and I'll give you 40 grand. You're going to buy it for 200,000. You're going to bring your down payment of $40,000 or yeah, for let's say 40,000, you have to bring $40,000 down. Now we've got 160 plus 40. That's your, the loan from the bank is 160 plus your 40. That's 200,000. I'm going to get the 200,000, which of course 40,000 is my money that I gave you to bring. Mm -hmm. And then I'll give you 40,000 or 20 or whatever we agree upon to go through the transaction. Now you end up with the property. Maybe you rent it out. You make six months worth of payments. Maybe you sell it. Maybe you just let it go into foreclosure. I actually know, I, I know multiple people that have, have had people buy properties from them for millions of dollars, then split the profit on it. And then those people go into foreclosure because they don't mind because they made $300,000. So I don't mind going into foreclosure and I'll claim bankruptcy. I have $300,000. Most people are never going to have $300,000 at their disposal. So that happens a lot. That's a cash back. It's a cash back scam. You know? So that's essentially what it is. Hmm. You're giving people cash back at close. Although prostitution is legal in some places here in Nevada, prostitution and solicitation are illegal here in Las Vegas. And thousands of unsuspecting tourists get arrested for this every year. The good news is that at Las Vegas Defense Group, we've had a tremendous record of success in helping people defend against prostitution and solicitation charges. Maybe you were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Maybe you were just joking around and not really serious about paying money for sex. Maybe you were the victim of police entrapment. We invite you to call us 24-7 at 702-DEFENSE 
and tell us your story. We'll see what we can do to get the charges reduced or dismissed. So this will be the only suit available. Um, it'll be fully lined with white and recession-proof blue on the inside. So that's, that's going to be it. That's all right. All right. So if y'all see me, in, you know, I'm doing orange suits. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try to launch it. I'm, yeah. I'm not even putting this, this podcast out. Okay? <laughs> I'm going to get my suit live first. All right, yeah. All right so let, 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 let's walk, walk me back. Walk me okay. back to um, where you grow up, man. Stockton, California. Stockton, California. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your childhood, like your family, mom and dad. Ah, uh, mom. You know. Just mom? Mom. Typical, um... Street baby. That's crazy that that's typical. Right? It was typical. But it's not anymore. See? kind of, no, like when I ask the question, like, uh, like mom and dad, you're like, no, mom. Like, almost like a... Like, like it's like, natural. Who, yeah, who has a father? You're right. <laughs> Listen, that's so bad. Yo. Oh. <laughs> that's a dad. But the, the, but the crazy thing is, if, if you, like, Whole a bunch of people just in our environment. It's like, yo, it was just my, and I don't think maybe, uh, maybe it's not just a, a African American thing. Maybe it's just a people thing. I mean, marriage just no, doesn't work out fifty percent of the time, right? I, I take it as a community. I think it's an African American thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's African American thing because in the eighties, where a lot of us were born in our generation now, is drugs hit. Mm-hmm. So we dealt with cocaine, we dealt with, you know, then we dealt with mass incarceration. So that's where a lot of us don't have fathers. It wasn't that a lot of our fathers weren't present, they dealt with drug abuse. Mm-hmm. Then if they weren't using, they were selling. Wow. So a lot of our family and a lot of the men's got ripped out of our home, so it's so easy for us to say, nah, I was raised by my mother. That's real. That's but real. this generation of our children, it isn't. Yeah. Because now we hear. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's like a cool thing to Listen, be a we, father. We yeah. hear. I don't know I don't know one of my friends who's not a father. When you look out, I, I witnessed Jeremy Anderson. Yeah. You look at Mr. Two Weeks Out. Yeah. Right? You, right? Yeah. Fathers, we're all in our children's life. We raise our kids. Mm. So when we look at our generation now, it's cool to be that. It's like you almost going to get castrated. You can't really come around if you really don't take care of your kids. Like you got real. kids and you don't. You got to create that culture, bro. Like you got to create that culture. Almost like entrepreneurship in our circle. You feel me? Like you can't yeah. say we're all hanging out and it's just somebody complaining about their job or complaining about. You look at him like, who brought who brought him? Yeah, you know like it's almost uncomfortable, yeah. right? Or it's gonna be uncomfortable for you to say, "Oh, y'all going? I gotta go to work. I'm not gonna be able to make it at that time." Or I got imagine this, Yo, Dave. Yeah, I'm not gonna be able to make the podcast. I, I don't got the PTO right now. Mm. It's all, almost like an uncomfortable thing to where it's like, what are we really supposed to? You don't got a PTO. You gotta ask somebody to come outside. Yeah, you gotta you gotta create that environment where it's uncomfortable, man. I yeah. remember being in that environment. I think I was complaining one time around one one of my um, one of my my mentors. And he said, "What are you t- What are you talking about? Well, you gotta go, bro." Mm-hmm. I'm like, yo, I'm 
I mean, I'm just, I'm just like letting it out. I'm just complaining about kind of the things that are going on, and I'm thinking my mentor understands. He's like, yo, what are you doing? Yeah. We don't do that here. And it, when you make that cool, that's different. But yeah. back to where we was yeah, at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the childhood. Childhood. Um, you know, I have one of the, I'm one of the kids that, I was the baby. Mm-hmm. The most entitled and a problem child. So, you know, I lived, I always lived my life on my terms, good or bad. I, I, I accepted it and I lived my life on my terms. But I know as a child, I experienced a lot of traumas. So, like, my best friend at nine years old, he was nine, I was eight, drowned. So, mm. we literally out playing community center what am I doing out at an eight year eight year old kid right what are we doing out by ourselves mm. at a community center that wasn't as bad back then. with a creek yeah. right full levee yeah but we end up on the rocks he slips in drowns. it was three of us yeah he slips in drowns body disappears mud couldn't get out disappears wow nobody so, jumped in well what's okay. going on were you like just in shock like this is what's happening right it's, here i'm standing at the top of the hill right going down we ain't supposed to be down there i'm one of the ones that goes yeah i'm 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 gonna watch from here <laughs> right right right. <laughs> right right and so but no Dang. and that's the that's the thing is that that's hard to witness as a that eight year old. Yo, listen. So God. you know that's something that I still see, uh, even with his burial, even with his funeral. Compact sedan, and they just find out when you get there. Right, right. Turo, you get to choose the car. No hidden fees. Everything is clear as day. So that was the benefit. So with me, I was driving. My, this is how it happened. Justin, new ACO. I got a rental car. I'm like, man, I'm, I don't care what car it is. I got a little small Ford, Ford like the small little, I think it was a Forte, I don't know what it's called. A small car. Right. I had a meeting with Justin Owens, new ACEO. I went to Target to go drop, we parked in Target. I went to the car. He hopped in his car, what car? It was S550. I hopped in my, my um, little small Ford. He clowned the heck out of me. Because <laughs> y'all about the same height, too. And he knows how much money I make. Right. <laughs> he knows what I can afford. He was clowning me like, bro, why are you in that car? Right. Like, why does it matter? Right. We just need to get to point A, point B. Nobody cares. Everybody knows I got it. Why does it matter? But he said, he grilled me so much. On my, on my whole ride home, I was like, man, I'm about to get in the car. <laughs> I'm tired of this. Driving this. I'm tired of having to explain myself. <laughs> That's how I end up getting the testimony. So that's the question. Why would somebody not just um, rent a car from Hertz or Budget or a traditional rental car company mm-hmm. versus Turo? Because you have more options for nicer cars. Gotcha, gotcha. What about credit checks and credit cards? I know you sometimes, uh, there was a point in my life where you're so, you say, okay, I'm going to go get, I'm get a rental car, but you never know what they're going to ask for. Yeah, exactly. Like if, yo, that lit my heart always. You don't know if you're gonna get it. Like, you're gonna get it. They need credit card. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. with Turo, you don't need to have a credit card. That's another benefit of it. 
or the platforms like Toro, even a personal booking, all depends on how somebody wants to run their business. But usually with a traditional, you have to be a certain age, mm-hmm. you have to put it on a certain deposit, deposit certain credit, uh, what else do they need? Sometimes you have to have a flight ticket to prove that you're not a true, local. True, like there's true, certain part, Of course they do it to protect their business, I understand, yeah. but some people don't have those options, so they need other options to be able to get a car, to run out. Gotcha. So so they really, really, Toro, they'll let anybody who has a driver's of license. They, of course they go do background checks. Of course there, there's a, 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 a vetting process. Of course all that, and of course the car's insured, but it's not as difficult as the traditional rental car. Gotcha, gotcha. And you can just find what you like, like something nice. That's the key piece. Gotcha. It's options. I got better options. So income potential. Walk me through income potential. Income potential. Depending on what car you have, it always falls around anywhere cash flowing. This is net profit. Cash flowing anywhere from $300 a month to even upwards of what I was making, $3,000 per car. Mm. My Corvette was averaging $1,600. My my Tesla was averaging twenty six hundred. Um, profit, after profit, expenses. profit, profit, profit. This is literally profit. Mm. Um, my my C three hundred it didn't perform as well. It was probably in the the eight hundred dollar range. Mm. So it all, but, but me, I have my receipts. So and I show cash people flows, cash flow though. Cash flow, cash flow. So you then compare your cash flow to the amount of time that it takes to manage the operation. So with me, I did it all by myself. I then hired one of my brothers at church to help me out with the check-ins and checkouts. But it wasn't labor-intensive. I was still able to do my real business, my marketing mm. agency. I was still able to do the things that I really enjoy, going to church, hosting Bible studies, while managing these three cars. Yeah. And I realized that the cars that I had leveraged the marketing deals that I was actually closing. And I told people, yeah, I own a car rental company, small small fleet, three cars. I got a Corvette, Maserati, C300. They were so amazed at the fact that I was in this business that they weren't even thinking about the marketing no more. They was just signing the deal. Oh, right, tell me right. about the Corvette. Right? <laughs> tell me about that story that you told me. Right. How do I get in this? It was so it was amazing leverage. Where do we? Where do you keep? All these cars. All right, all right. This is crazy. That's a good question. So um, initially, remember why I was keeping my cars? Target. Yes. Once I went from three and I turned up, I was parking the cars. I was trying to park the cars at Target. The Target um, general manager called me and said, "Um, this is Matthew. Are you the one who has all these cars on my lot? He said, yeah, you, you got to move them. You're ODing right now. I, I, I did the most. I, I forced <laughs> You're ODing right now. I was getting away with the three cars. But as soon as I tried to bring them all there, then now I was like, all right, I'll move them. Can, can you give me like a week to figure it out? He mm-hmm. said, he was cool. He was super cool. Cool. It'll give you a week. I think it was during, it was it was, it was during a big weekend where they need, they definitely need the space. Uh-huh. And now my cars are a big attraction. Everybody was taking pictures. You can see on the cameras. They showed me. Everybody was going around the cars, taking pictures there in the cars, oh, all that wow. crazy stuff. So I had to figure it out. I had to move all my cars to my apartment, one of my other apartments in Norcross. It was, I got a picture of it. All my cars lined up in all the parking spaces. I got away with it for two weeks until they called me and said, you got to move these cars. <laughs> right. By God's grace, by God's grace. As I was posting, every time I got a new car, I posted on my Instagram, like, look, I got another car. Kidnapping 
is an extremely serious crime here in the state of Nevada. Kidnapping is divided into two categories, first-degree kidnapping and second-degree kidnapping. First-degree kidnapping is defined under NRS 200.310 as abducting or carrying somebody away for the purpose of committing a sexual assault, extortion, or robbery, or for the purpose of killing or causing serious bodily harm to somebody. And the penalties for first-degree kidnapping are up to life in prison. Second-degree kidnapping would be all other forms of kidnapping, and that would include, for example, a couple who are having an argument in a car. And the passenger says she wants to get out of the vehicle. And the driver says, no, I want to talk. You're coming with me and drives off. Technically, the state could charge that as a kidnapping because you're carrying someone away against their will. Your purpose may not be to cause any harm to them, but the mere movement of someone against their will can constitute kidnapping. Second-degree kidnapping carries a penalty of up to 15 years. And in any case of kidnapping, NRS 193.165 also provides for an additional penalty of up to 20 years if a deadly weapon is used in the course of a kidnapping.